there's a huge amount of ego associated with the number of employees you have. If you're a three-person operation, that's far less impressive than if you're a 30-person operation or 300-person operation. The reality is that a 300-person operation could make less money than a 30-person operation. But there is an ego attached to that, and there is a, a messaging to the market that I'm more stable, I'm more substantial, and therefore you can use me if I have more people. So the proxy for sustainability, the proxy for reliability is the number of people I have. And so we are falsely lured into trying to increase that number at the cost of profit, efficiency, complexity that is unnecessary. Hi, I'm Gareth Armstrong, and you're listening to a Razor's Edge podcast. That's the voice of Elon Reyes, CEO of Racecorp, and our guide during this hiring series. What is the series all about? Elon's successes and failures have taught him lessons about hiring that he wants to share with us with the goal to help us grow as quickly and effectively as possible while avoiding expensive, possibly business-sinking employment mistakes. Let's pick up on Elon's comments about ego-driven decisions here. If I look at my maturity over the years, I no longer chase the employment number. What I really chase is my revenue as a ratio to the number of employees. And even better, the profitability as a ratio to the number of employees. So what I'm trying to do now as I've matured as an entrepreneur is not have more people. I want more profit per person, more revenue per person. The focal point right now is how do I make this thing more and more efficient through better process, automation, better people, better process flow. And that's really my focus right now is trying to get that right. But in the beginning, as you're chasing this, I've got three, five, 10, 20 employees. We fall into the trap of employing for the sake of employing because we've got a problem right now. We need hands. This episode is all about thinking through the hiring decision and its implications. Alon describes how so many entrepreneurs he works with make knee-jerk reaction decisions because they have this upcoming challenge or current crisis that they feel needs additional capacity. Perhaps this in some way describes you right now. If we wrench ourselves away from the now and attempt to look at the situation through a different lens, I'm certain we'd see that the actions we are taking because of the immediacy of the need are not exactly what we'd be doing if we had more time to think through the process. And that is exactly what Alon is insisting we do, regardless of the pressure we are under. So what is this better way? How do we slow down and what actions should we take just a few more hours or perhaps even days to consider and then pursue? The starting point is before you hire, you need to be afraid at some level that you don't need to hire or you're going to hire badly. Now, we all do have to hire. If we're going to grow our businesses, we do have to hire. But there needs to be the sense of, I don't want to use the word trepidation, but I don't know what word would be closest to trepidation before you hire, that if I'm going to hire, is it the right person? Do I really need to hire? Once I hire, what is that person going to do? And what is that person's trajectory within the business moving forward? We often, as I mentioned before, have this knee-jerk reaction and we want to solve our pain right now and we're not thinking medium or long-term around those individuals. 
So the first thing you want to do is you want to understand whether there are other resources around to take up that pain right now, whether that pain that you're experiencing, in other words, the high demand and low capacity that you're experiencing or are anticipating is long-term or short-term. If it's short-term, then the ideal is either to find other hands within the organization to help or find somebody in a temporary situation. If it's medium term with a very understood finite end, for example, a one-year project, then once again, if you know that that project will terminate and that type of resource will not be required anywhere else in the organization into the future, that too is an indication that this should be a contracted position and not a full-time position. But we're in the pain right now and we want somebody to take away that pain. So we employ the first person who says they can do the job. And then we're stuck with them forever in a day. So I think it's very important that you set up your thinking to think is the short term, medium, long term. Long term, justify that I need to employ full time. Medium term could be both ways. If the individual can be reused in other parts of the business, then that could be a full-time role. And short-term, I've got a short-term project, a week, a month, even a year, it's definitely should be contracting or even more ideally to use another resource within the organization. Once we have a firmer grasp on the short, medium and long-term implications of our employment decisions, which of course include the numbers associated with these, it's time to look at what roles we are hiring for. In the beginning years of a business, the corridors are often filled with generalists that are able to move around the business and its functions. But for growing businesses, this doesn't last. While some projects are going to simply need added capacity and expertise, and these can be short-term hires for the duration of the project, as we grow, the needs of the business and the hiring process evolve and must now take into consideration more than just executing on a contractual obligation. As Alon shared earlier, efficiency and profitability is the name of the game. And in order to achieve this, various functions become more and more specialized. In line with this, I asked Alon what roles we should be pushing to specialize as early as possible in our businesses that lead to greater forward momentum. So if I think about the most important roles to specialize quickly, it would be sales. The ability to generate demand. If you follow what I've been saying for the last 20 years, you'll know that for me the entrepreneur needs to be able to sell and want to sell and be comfortable selling. What I would emphasize is that the entrepreneur should not abdicate at that point the sales function. It would be how do I build additional sales capacity in the organization? Now, if the entrepreneur is able to create demand higher than the capacity to deliver, then you wait until the capacity to deliver is higher than the demand, and then you start to specialize in, in the sales. You spoke about finance, and the finance role is a function of the size of the business. You don't want to come in with a 20 years experience FD in a startup business. It's overkill. It's too expensive. So you might start off with a bookkeeper, even an external bookkeeper, then move to an internal bookkeeper, then an accountant, 
and then move up in terms of the experience and quality of the individual. It, you have to match the individual and their cost to the size of the business and what you can afford. And that is this constant pressure in the organization. It's this kind of thinking that moves us with much greater precision and pace towards growth. These considerations also lead us into thinking carefully about staff turnover, automation, company culture, and role design. Let's spend a few minutes addressing these. We'll begin with staff turnover. What we don't talk about, and because it's hard to talk about, is that people reach their limit. The organization grows, and people, including the entrepreneur, by the way, reach their limit, their capacity to grow. I always speak about the organization will grow to the limit of the entrepreneur, but it can also be restricted by the capacity and the capabilities within the organization. So if you've got a really bad bunch of salespeople, the organization is limited by them. Same thing by finance, same thing by anyone whose function is to deliver the value to the client. And then the entrepreneur has this terrible task of making decisions around individuals who are no longer at the right level. They have not grown with organization. You know, I read a great book, Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn, and he's got a wonderful metaphor, which is tours of duty, you know, like a soldier going on a tour of duty to Iraq or wherever it might be, they go on these tours. And the concept there is that there is a finite time period and a stage that you serve in the organization. He speaks about the fact that there are even specialized CEOs for startups who can handle you know, the zero to one million revenue, the one million to 10 million, the 10 to 100, and the 100 to a billion, and so on, that there's specialized CEOs who know how to run organizations at that level because that's their speciality. They know how to do that well. It's true for other people. If you put certain people into a big multinational organization at the same role as a small three-person operation, that multinational organization is going to require a completely different set of skills and capabilities to the two, three-person operation. You have to manage that. And once again, this is a, a maturity thing over time. I think there is no organization that has no attrition. And if there was, I would say that that's problematic. It's as problematic as one with a high attrition. There is a sweet spot of attrition where you've got enough people ending their tours of duty that are leaving because there is no future for them because the organization is evolving and they move on to other places where there is a future for them. And every time you bring in new people, you bring in new ideas, new blood, new energy, new questions into the organization. So from a system theory point of view, an organization that doesn't bring in a new information becomes a redundant system, a redundant organization. And so to me, there is a target around attrition. There should be a target. Now, I don't want to say that's 10% or 20% or 50%, whatever the case may be, because every industry, every business would have their own sweet spot of what that is. But I think the point I want to make is that attrition in of itself is not a bad thing. When it's too high, it's a bad thing. When it's too low, it's a bad thing. You have to find the sweet spot. 
And so us as an organization, as Rose Corp, have got that target. We know actually even parole what type of attrition we would deem to be acceptable and normal. And this is, I think, a very important thing. And it's a naivete that a lot of small business entrepreneurs have is that they've got very good relationships with their employees because of the kumbaya, we're in this together kind of feeling. But as the organization grows, those individuals will leave. The employees will leave at some point. Some might last 20 years, some five years, some five months, but they will leave. And it's naive to build an organization with a belief system that people won't leave. And so you design the role around the individual and not the role, how the role should be, which is another big mistake that small businesses make. Part of what Alon is sharing may sound cold and calculated, but if we really think about it, there is a whole lot of heart in there too, a real desire to help people achieve their best and feel like they are contributing in a meaningful way even if it is no longer within the business that he or we lead. Speaking of cold and calculated, let's now spend a moment considering the implications and opportunities of automation. So automation is an interesting thing because it's emotive, takes people's jobs away, right? But there is the counter side that if you are automating and you're my competitor and I'm not automating, you're going to be more efficient, produce better pricing, better output, and I'll go out of business and everyone will lose their job. So if you don't automate, you also lose jobs. So that's an important consideration. I'll give you an example. In in our selection department, we had a reporting function, which was automated. Before it was automated, it would take one individual half a day to produce a daily report. Then we started the automation process, and then it took them two hours and then one hour, And then it was a push of a button. And then there was no button required to be pushed. It happened automatically. It was programmed. In that department, that individual, if I look at half a day, 11 working days were released by automation. Now, we didn't get rid of that individual. We just repurposed that individual to do more of what they were doing in the other 50%. Coming back to how we started this conversation, If there is automation happening in the organization or about to and you want to employ, once again, you're thinking more medium term and saying, well, will I need this individual into the future if I'm automating? It might be better for me to contract right now, get the automation right, and then I won't have that demand because I can absorb that demand with the people currently in in that department. That's a huge consideration And sometimes that automation is happening internally, in other words, driven by the organization. And sometimes it's happening through technology. If you think about accounting software, where you can now map receipts to GL codes. So it knows that if I get an invoice from this company, I know where to post it. There's no fingers, it's optical recognition. The software knows where to post that receipt. It can read the receipt and it posts that receipt to a general ledger code on the income statement or balance sheet. That's not driven internally. That's driven by outside and you can buy in that technology. Or in many instances, it's forced upon you. You can no longer do this. This is the way that the banking system works or this is the way that your 
your accounting system has been upgraded or the software has been upgraded to do this. All these things contribute to the decision whether to employ or not. And so to me, I think the message of this podcast is do not knee-jerk into employing without thinking through whether this is a viable medium to long-term decision. And if you're feeling the pain right now and you cannot find a way through, then the right way to think about this is to contract or outsource. We're coming to the end of this discussion, but stick around just a little while longer because in the next few minutes together, Alon sets the foundation for future insights he'll be sharing around company culture and role design. I think there are two things that come to mind. The first is what I call a capacity calculation. Generally, and I have to admit it's not universal, so it cannot be done in every single role. But you want to get a sense of what is the capacity of an individual. And that would relate to how many units of X can that individual produce a week, a month. And if there are two people doing it, is there a vast difference between person A and person B? And so that tells you that you're looking for the person who has the highest efficiency or productivity in the department and you're looking at that as your capacity calculation. What I do now with my heads of department when they say to me, I need new headcount, I need new people, they know that they can't come to me without proving it. And how they do that is first of all, they have a capacity calculation for that role. And they say, this role produces X amount of something a month. And I can show you for the last so many months, we've been at 115% of capacity. And the likelihood, based on talking to sales and based on other information, is that this is going to continue. My team is burning. This is not going away. It's time now to employ somebody else. That capacity calculation is an incredibly important part of decision-making around employing. And most businesses, particularly small businesses, don't have the discipline to do that or don't know how to do that. Don't over-engineer it. That would be my advice. Keep it as a rule of thumb. Don't go down to the minutiae of every single little type of task that is done by an individual. But you look at the outputs as a rule of thumb. What is the output you're requiring from that individual? You just want to get a sense that this person is working and producing, more importantly, not just working, but producing the output that is required. The second thing is around surrogacy. So I'm an advocate for surrogacy in a small business. And what surrogacy means is that somebody takes on a role or a function because they can do it and there's no one else to do it. For example, your receptionist might be sitting there you know, waiting for the phone to ring. That receptionist would be take on a role of administration. But fast forward 10 years later, when that phone is ringing every 20 seconds, that is not a logical answer into the future. So what happens with businesses is that people take on surrogacy roles, and then you forget. And then you fall into the trap that that is the only individual who knows how to do that thing. And so you assume that that person is the right person to do that, A, because they've always done it, and B, because they know how to do it and no one else knows how to do it. And so the trap around surrogacy is that you design the organization incorrectly 
because of a surrogacy decision you made years before, which was the right decision at that time. So once again, when looking at uh, employing, you look at the role and you also try and identify what in this role is surrogacy that might have been put into this role that shouldn't be in this role. And that discipline of looking for surrogacy might free up a whole bunch of capacity that should be handled by somebody else in the organization. And now all of a sudden, you don't need to employ a new person because you've tested for surrogacy before you've employed. So you've tested for efficiency or productivity, and now you've tested to see if there's any surrogacy in the role right now that should be in another part of the business. And then use that opportunity to move that function, that surrogacy function, to the right part of the business. So this is around organizational design. And when you're small, you know, everyone does everything. The entrepreneur is a jack of all trades. They sell, they do admin, they are the HR function, they do everything. But as the organization grows, we very much focus in entrepreneurial theory around the entrepreneur becoming more and more focused and doing what they should do best. But we forget about everyone else that has also fallen into the trap of surrogacy. And so it's a very good discipline to check for surrogacy as well. Here's a final word from Alon about employee happiness, its role in employee effectiveness, and the reason we don't necessarily need to serve free lunches or place sleeping pods around the office. I resist the family metaphor as well. I talk about a community. We're in a community that works together in a aligned, purpose-driven way. We're all focusing on the same thing, and we all derive our own needs from this organization that is pointing in the right direction because it's a purpose-driven organization and people are aligned to that purpose or not. And quite frankly, anyone who's not aligned to, to that purpose finds it hard to be in the organization. But I also have to be mature enough to know that some people are in this organization for a job. It's nice to know that we do that, but they would also go and work in a condom factory and that'd be okay too. At the end of the day, everyone comes to work for themselves. I'm generalizing here, but I think it would be true that everyone is about self-interest. I come here and work here for the money, for the feeling of growth, for the feeling of purpose, but it's my feeling. And the moment I don't have that feeling anymore, I don't feel there's a future for me, I don't feel happy, I don't feel well taken care of financially, I'll move. And that's fine. As an entrepreneur, you want to build an organization that provides fair remuneration, growth, purpose, so that people can fulfill their needs within that organization. And that's a separate thing. So it's a complex answer. This is not a, just a simple answer. The cold narrative is that you want happy employees so that they stay for longer and become more efficient. I don't think it's that black and white, and I don't think it's that simple. I think it's a far more complex thing. But to be real, yeah, for me, I would rather work with individuals I like who are efficient, effective, and aligned to what Corp wants than to be fighting with individuals who are not productive or might be productive but not aligned. So it's also about 
the fact that I want to come to work and work with these individuals every day. And you know, when we're all in inverted commas, the same team, which comes back to that kumbaya, my friend, when we're all pulling in the same direction and all want the same thing and all are deriving what we need from this organization that we personally require, that's the ideal space. But your requirements as an individual changes. As you get older, you now I might have a kid going to you know, private school and now I need more money and now the organization doesn't provide me sufficient money. So my personal situation changes you know, my happiness because now I was happy until I had the need for more money and now I need more money and now I'm not happy. But the organization didn't do anything differently. Your personal circumstances changed. But I've got somebody here at, at our organization that worked in a big corporate and hated and came for a significant salary reduction to be in an environment where she was happy, where she didn't feel the level of trepidation coming to work every single day that she did in that environment. And so she sacrificed money for happiness. Will she be here forever? I doubt it. Will she be here for a long time? I think so. I hope so. But at some point, some part of her personal needs will not be satisfied by this organization. And I, as the entrepreneur, as the founder, have to be happy with that. We've covered a lot today. I hope that what you've heard has helped you with your pre-employment thoughts and planning. If you have any questions related to this episode or the hiring process in general, please feel free to share these on the RaceCorp page on your favorite social media platform. Please use the hashtag AvoidHiringMistakes to help us locate it more easily. Alternatively, you can make contact with us using any of the options found on RaceCorp.com. My name is Gareth Armstrong and I'll see you in the next episode.